Um, I have up here both a photo of Stephen Hawking uh, and uh, Leonard Mlodinov, his co-author's new book, uh, The Grand Design, New Answers to the Ultimate Questions of Life, which came out fairly recently and made headline news uh, around the world on both sides of the Atlantic. I can only say uh, that they've got a very good publicist working uh, for their publisher uh, to uh, make the front page of the Times newspaper, for example, uh, for bringing this book out. And a photo here of uh, Stephen Hawking. I'll just refer to it as Stephen Hawking's book, although it is co-authored uh, with this uh, other chap, uh, Leonard Mlodnow, but it becomes a little bit cumbersome saying Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnow's book all the way through, so I'll just uh, pricey that down. They start off with a bunch of questions that have traditionally been philosophical questions about sort of the big issues of life, the universe, and everything. And in particular, they ask, where did all this, the universe, come from? Did the universe need a creator? Honestly, one long-standing traditional answer to that question is yes. It did need a creator, indeed. It had a creator. All the way back to the beginning of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created so there was a God, there was a beginning of the universe, and that universe was caused, created by God. On the other hand, we now have Hawking and Mlodinov making front page news, generating headlines such as this in the Times. Hawking, God did not create universe. I love that effect. If you've seen any of those old black and white films about journalists or... Uh, uh, newspaper hacks in uh, 1940s New York, they always have a scene where the newspaper spins out of the back of the screen at you. So I was very pleased to find that effect. So I'm going to break this up into a number of different uh, topics. And uh, I'm going to concentrate, because my background is in philosophy, and I've got a big interest in the philosophy of science, but I'm not a professional uh, scientist of any kind, but I'm going to focus on the philosophical structure and claims of this book because it actually is mainly a book of philosophy done by a couple of scientists who are, in a sense, therefore, stepping outside of the train of their professional expertise when they're drawing inferences or making arguments about these big philosophical issues in their book. So I'm going to look very briefly at Hawking on philosophy and the nature of philosophy. Look at the Big Bang argument for God. Look at a related but different argument called the First Cause argument for God. And then I'll also change topic a little bit and look at one version of the so-called design argument for God called the fine-tuning argument. So you can see that what I'm going to do is in kind of a dialogue with uh, Hawking and Mlodinov is put to you three arguments that would be part of the cumulative case that I would make for believing that there is indeed a creator. So Hawking and philosophy. Because I just need to draw attention to some very startling views that Hawking and his co-author have in this area. They say this, traditionally, these are questions of philosophy, questions like, where did all this come from? But philosophy is dead. They say in the introduction, philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. 
So, get rid of philosophy, close down all the philosophy departments and the universities all over the world, because that's dead, and particularly because the poor philosophers, particularly those, those poor benighted philosophers of science around the world, just haven't kept up with their science. Well, I had a quote earlier in the, the day from Professor John Lennox, who's a mathematician and philosopher of science at uh, Green College, Oxford. And he reacts like this. He says, Hawking's statement about philosophy being dead is itself a philosophical statement. It is manifestly not a statement of science. It is a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It's a classic example of logical incoherence. Now, I think alarm bells should go off in our minds when a scientist wants to come on and say, philosophy is dead, I'm trained in science, science is going to answer all of the questions about everything, when the very process of putting forward that view is philosophically self-contradictory. And within philosophy, it just doesn't get any worse than that for a viewpoint, because that means it cannot be true. Professor George Ellis is the uh, president of the International Society for Science and Religion. And he puts it like this in the Times. He says, philosophy is not dead. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical. Whatever answer you give to that question, it's a philosophical answer. Science can't answer that question about itself. Indeed, science assumes and relies upon a host of philosophical assumptions about reality, even to do science. Professor William Lane Craig, who I'll come back to at a couple of points as an American Christian philosopher, notes that despite their claim to speak as scientific torchbearers of knowledge, what Hawking and Molodnow are engaged in is philosophy. Why then, he asks, do they pronounce philosophy dead and claim as scientists to be bearing the torch of discovery? Why make this move? He reckons simply because that enables them to cloak their amateurish philosophizing with the mantle of scientific inquiry. And so avoid the hard work of actually arguing for rather than merely asserting their philosophical viewpoints. He's really pulling no punches there. And indeed, when it comes to the philosophy of science that Hawking and his co-author hold, they hold a very um, fringe view of the philosophy of science. A very um, odd view, which I think has rather odd impacts as you read the rest of the book, bearing in mind the philosophy of science that they have. Here's some quotes. According to our philosophy of science, if there are two models, two hypotheses, if you like, that both agree with observation, one cannot say that one is more real than another. And then they talk about the issue of origins. And they say, one possible model of origins is favoured by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is literally true. We'll know what they mean by that. One can also have a different model in which time continues back 17.3 billion years to the Big Bang. Now get this, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. So according to Stephen Hawking, 
young earth creationism as a scientific model of origins is equally as valid as Big Bang cosmology. And the question of, well, which is, which is true is a non-question. Okay. Bear that philosophy of science in mind as we think through the rest of the issues. Uh, I don't agree with that philosophy of science, but I think it has significant impact on the rest of the discussion if you were to agree with them on their philosophy of science here. So let's look at the, the Big Bang. I had a little video in the first conference about the Big Bang. Agnostic mathematician David Belinsky says this in his book The Devil's Delusion, which is a response to the uh, new atheist thinkers. He's an agnostic. Uh, and he says at one point, there is a very natural connection between the fact that the universe had a beginning and the hypothesis that it had a creator. The Big Bang singularity strikes an uncomfortably theistic note, he says. And indeed, when Big Bang cosmology was beginning to come online and replacing what was called steady-state cosmology at the time, many scientists shied away from embracing Big Bang cosmology because they thought it was too kind of theistic and creationistic in its interpretation, in its implications. I've already shown you this video of the COBE satellite, the cosmic microwave background energy uh, pictures. If you take photos at, 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 in the spectrum at different distances, because light takes time to travel, what you're basically doing is taking pictures of the universe at different time frames. And if you run that where red is hot and blue is cold, you can see as we go from the past and coming more and more into the present, the universe is cooling down like in the aftermath of an explosion. It's a bit like uh, if you have a hot mug of coffee up here, what happens in thermodynamics, of course, is the, the coffee gets gradually colder as you get to an equilibrium of temperature between the coffee mug and the rest of the room. The rest of the room all gets slightly hotter as the coffee gets cooler until the coffee is at room temperature. In Big Bang cosmology, where the idea is that when the universe started off at a singularity about 13.7-ish billion years ago, it was very, very small and very, very dense and very, very hot. Lots of energy. But as the universe then expands, you've got more and more room to distribute that energy over. And so each individual area of the universe, as it's getting bigger and bigger, gets cooler and cooler, as it were. So that was one of the several pieces of data that really uh, clinched Big Bang cosmology, replacing the steady-state theory. So think of it this way. We've looked at, very briefly, some scientific evidence for thinking that there was a beginning to the universe. Now, if I were to add this second premise or truth claim to the observation of Big Bang cosmology, that every physical event has a cause of some kind. Every physical event stands in relation, in a causal relation, to some state of affairs outside of itself. That would be the claim. Now, I think it's a claim that we often assume within science because we go looking for the causes of things. You wouldn't bother doing much science if you didn't think that things had causes in the physical world. But I think really my support for this would be more of a sort of intuition 
that every physical event must have some kind of a cause outside of itself. Now, if you think that is more plausible as a claim about the nature of reality than the denial of this claim, something rather interesting follows. We've said, premise one, there was a first physical event. Let's bring in Big Bang cosmology as one argument for that. But secondly, that every physical event has a cause, from which you deduce the conclusion that therefore the first physical event had a cause. If those two premises are true, then that conclusion must be true. It's a logically valid argument. The question is, do you think both of the premises are true, or is one of them at least false? But I'd like to build and kind of extend that argument. If you agree with me thus far, I think interesting implications can be kind of drawn from that kind of single syllogism. So let's carry forward that conclusion there, make that a premise and a new argument. First physical event had a cause of some kind. Premise two. Thinking about it, doesn't it strike you that the cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical event? It would be a bit like looking at a line of dominoes toppling and saying, well, this domino fell over because it was caused to by that domino, which fell over because it was caused to by that domino. And I say, well, what about the first domino in the, in the, in the row? Why did that one fall over? And you say, well, because of the previous domino. But it, it, it's the first one. By definition, there is no previous domino to the first domino. And again, if you think both of those premises are true, more likely true than false, it would follow deductively that therefore the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause of some kind. Because after all, what is there apart from being a physical thing or not being a physical thing? Seems a pretty exclusive uh, set of categories. But again, if you follow that thus far and you buy into all of the premises, one final way of extending it. So we've got here, the first physical event had a non-physical cause. Add to it this premise. Do you think this is more plausibly true than false? The non-physical cause of the first physical event must have been a person of some kind, must have been a being, an agent of some kind. What other kind of non-physical causal reality could there be? Philosophers generally think that if something is non-physical, of course they disagree about whether or not there are non-physical things, but if there are, they would generally think it must be either some kind of a mind, an agent, or what's called an abstract object. A bit like Plato used to think that there really were such things as numbers. But there really is the number seven, say. Okay? Some people hold that view, mathematicians today still. Um, but even if you thought that things like the number seven, say, could exist objectively out there, it would be a non-physical thing, sure. But the number seven doesn't cause anything. Abstract objects, by definition, don't have causal powers. So it would seem by process of elimination that that premise might well be more plausible than its denial, from which it would follow that therefore the first physical event had a non-physical and personal cause of some kind. And you can see this is beginning to look a little bit like the kind of thing that theists believe in. 
It doesn't by any means show that theism is true, but it's certainly an interesting indication or signpost, isn't it? There's the the whole layout of the argument uh, for you. So that's a sort of fairly traditional way of putting an argument from the idea that the universe had a beginning. How do Stephen Hawking and his co-author react to that kind of view of things, that kind of argument? Well, Hawking objects, he says, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. That's a fine question. But if the answer is God, he says, then the question has merely been deflected to that of, well, who created God? If you say, who created the universe? Answer, God. Who created God then? God plus one? Who created him? God plus two? You know, infinite regress. Oh dear. A couple of responses. William Lane Craig again. He says, he notes, look, in order for an explanation of something to be the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Think what would happen if you made that a rule of being rational. In order to explain anything and think that something is the best explanation of some set of data, you must, of course, have an explanation of the explanation. Which would mean that you'd have to have an explanation of the explanation of the explanation. Which would mean that you'd have to have an explanation, and so on. Infinite regress. Problem. Well, John Lennox, he says, Hawking is here when he says, well, who, who made God? He's giving an argument that serves only to reveal the inadequacy of his concept of God. To ask the question of who created God logically presupposes that God is or must be a created entity. He sometimes puts it like this. If Richard Dawkins had written a book not called The God Delusion, but rather The Created God Delusion, a lot of theists would have said, Amen, brother. We don't believe in created gods either. Stephen Hawking is simply assuming that it's not possible for a god to be an uncreated reality. He's just begging the question against the answer. And indeed, Hawking's who made God question has traditionally been given what I think is a perfectly coherent answer at least. And if you buy again a couple of principles for your intuitions to nibble upon, A, from nothing, nothing comes. And B, there can't be an actually infinite regress of causes. You can't keep passing the buck ad infinitum. Well, from those it would follow that the buck must stop somewhere. And theists have traditionally thought of God as being that somewhere. The answer to who made God is nothing made God. God is, by definition, an uncaused first cause. And we can get away with saying that and mounting our first argument, because notice our first argument only built on the premise that physical events must have causes outside of themselves. It didn't claim that every kind of thing must have causes outside of itself. If you made the claim that every kind of thing must have a cause outside of itself, then you would be invoking an infinite regress. Problem. So actually, there's a related argument going on in the background here that Hawking and his co-authors seem to sort of confuse with the argument from there being a beginning to the universe, that kind of line of dominoes kind of argument. There's a more, uh, more purely philosophical argument called the first cause argument 
that a very simple first step of which would go something like this. Premise one. Some things exist that are caused by other things. Um, Me, for example. I only exist because my parents exist and they met. Um, Physical events, you might think, are prime candidates for things that exist but are caused by other things. Maybe you might think the first physical event is a prime candidate there as well. Premise two. It is impossible for everything to be caused. Because we get into that infinite regress problem if we say that everything must have a cause. And of course, Hawking's depending on that infinite regress being a bad thing, even to raise his objection to the God did it explanation. There can't be an actually infinite regress of causes. And we'll think of it like this. Given that from nothing, nothing comes, and there's nothing outside of everything, by definition, to do any causing of anything. Outside of everything is nothing, but from nothing Nothing comes. Given these two premises, if you think they're more plausible than their denials, it would follow that therefore something exists that exists without a cause. And again, that's part of what people have traditionally meant by God. Not the whole of, by any means, but add that to the other cosmological argument we had and treat it as part of a cumulative case. Back to Hawking. In this view, he says, it's accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator. Saying, okay, this is a possible view, and that entity is called, for the sake of argument, God. This is known as the first cause argument, which he seems to confuse with the Big Bang argument. We claim, however, that it's possible to answer these questions of existence purely within the realm of science, without invoking any divine beings. Okay, you can claim that, let's have a stab at doing it. Well, Peter Atkins, fellow atheist from Oxford Uni, makes this observation. He says, the unfolding of absolutely nothing into something is a problem of the profoundest difficulty and currently far beyond the reach of science. Well, I think just metaphysically, it'll always be beyond the reach of science or anything else because it just seems not possible As uh, Craig puts it, physics, science, is inherently applicable to being. There isn't a physics of non-being. Non-being doesn't have any qualities to be described by any physics. So you certainly can't have a physics of how you could get, how nothingness could produce something. This all goes back, this principle that I've kept invoking from nothing, nothing comes, to uh, Parmenides of Olea in the 5th century BC, at least, an ancient Greek philosopher. I, uh, you could put it in modern terms, and you can say it's true by definition, really. You can't get an effect without a cause. Well, Hawking is prepared to admit, sort of meters halfway here, he says, bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just appear out of nothing. But a whole universe can. Things like stars and black holes can't just pop into existence out of nothing, but an entire universe can, he asserts. How is he going to justify making an exception for entire universes to the rule that he admits applies to things like stars and black holes? Very badly. 
He says this. This is where it gets slightly scientific, a little bit sort of quantum mechanic-y here. Um, on the scale of the entire universe, they say, the positive energy of the matter, because when we have start the universe, we have a balance between matter and antimatter. If they were perfectly balanced, they would annihilate each other, but they were not quite perfectly balanced, and we end up with a surfeit of matter, so there's stuff. He says, on the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy within particular cosmological theory, which we needn't go into, really. And so there's no restriction on the creating of the whole universe out of nothing. Now, what's really going on here, unfortunately, is just trickery with words. It's a bit like me saying something like this. Because the mathematical sum of my two bank accounts one of which contains £100 and the other of which is £100 in debt, because the mathematical sum of those two accounts is zero, oh, look, zero can also mean nothing, nothingness. Therefore, I have no money and to boot no bank accounts. And it's perfectly possible for me to create money and bank accounts out of nothing because the sum of a positive bank account and a negative bank account is zero. But of course they are things, and so it's possible to get something out of nothing. He's saying that about universes. What he's doing is just not paying attention to the shift in the meaning of his terminology. And indeed, Peter Atkins uh, agrees with me on this one. He says... There are no laws in a universe that does not exist. Nothing has no properties and thus does not undergo a quantum fluctuation. This idea of because we can have a, a balance of the positive and negative, we can get something out of nothing out of the, the quantum vacuum, as it were. The quantum vacuum is not nothingness. It's a state described by physical laws. It is a something, not a nothing even though the mathematical sum of the energies of the two states is a zero. As Dr. Rowan Williams, he made a fantastic beard, isn't he? A very... <coughs> puts it like this. He, it's rather cheeky. He says, physical laws are about the regular relations between actual realities. I cannot see how they explain the bare fact that there is any reality at all. It's just a move that science is not the right subject to deal with, even. So, let's sum up these two arguments, this little section, with another quote from John Lennox. I've got some little books by John Lennox that he wrote in response to Leonard Milovnov here with me today, and I think the chaplaincy has bought a few copies that might be available. He says, Hawking says that the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says the universe creates itself. His notion that a law of nature, gravity in this case, explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its existence on the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. Laws of nature, C.S. Lewis once argued, don't cause anything. Newton's laws of motion have never caused a billiard ball to move across the table in the entire history of the universe. 
other billiard balls and sticks have caused billiard balls to move across tables in a way that's describable by Newton's laws of motion. Thus, the main conclusion of the book turns out not simply to be a self-contradiction, which would be bad enough, but a triple self-contradiction. Philosophers just might be tempted to comment, ah, so, this is what comes of saying philosophy is dead. Well, so far, from my perspective, so good. Taken together, I reckon that the Big Bang and the first cause arguments at least point to the existence of some kind of transcendent, beyond-the-world, non-physical, uncaused, probably personal, first cause of the universe. It's by no means everything that people who believe in God believe about God, but it's quite a big chunk. And, you know, it would be quite, quite a hard-headed atheist who would say, yes, I believe that that's true, but I'm an atheist. You know... Well, let's change tracks a little bit for one last section on a slightly different argument. Not the argument of why is there something, or where did it come from, given that it hasn't always been here, as it were, but rather why does it have the the structure, the form that that something has? It's one question to say why is it there, another question to say why is that kind of thing there? This is a version of the design argument that comes from data discovered in the last sort of 50 years or so uh, within science about the fine-tuning of the conditions in the Big Bang. Supposing, to draw an analogy, we had this gigantic universe-creating machine and we stick on that machine one dial, as it were, for every potential law of nature we could give a universe and we can tune them so we can make it stronger or weaker and we set it up to represent the way our universe actually is in its physical structure. Take any one of those conditions, change the proportion of the force by a small, small, small percentage and press the create a universe button. Kind of run the numbers, what would happen? The surprise to the physics community was that what would happen would be very different from what has happened in the huge majority of cases. That actually what you'd get would be a dull lifeless, probably chemistry-less, possibly atomic-less universe. Perhaps a universe in which you didn't even last long enough to condense matter out of the energy from the initial state. Something like that. And there's a whole range of uh, various different independent conditions and initial conditions and different laws that our universe relies upon to be kind of fruitful and to contain complex structures of any kind, certainly of any biological kind. Hawking again. The laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, he admits. And very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life. So he sees that there's an issue there. That's common ground. As Professor Paul Davis, an agnostic cosmologist, says in his book The Goldilocks Enigma and other places, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life. The question is over, is that appearance of design deceptive or not? As the Bible puts it in Hebrews 3 verse 4, for every house is built by someone, 
but God is the builder of everything, of the whole show. Well, let's structure the kind of argument that people put from this data and see how Hawking and co. Uh, deal with it. Here's William Lane Craig again. He puts it like this. Premise one, this fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity or chance or design. If we can rule out physical necessity and chance as being implausible, then we're ruling in by elimination design as being more plausible. Hawking agrees that the fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity. His favourite theory of everything, a bundle of different string theories called M-theory, he says, allows for 10 to the 500 different possible universes, different ways that the universe could coherently be, each with its own laws. The original hope of physicists to produce a, a, a single theory of everything, explaining the apparent laws of our universe as the unique possible consequences of a few simple assumptions, may have to be abandoned. It appears, he says, that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. They're not necessary. They really could have been different. So we can cross out necessity, physical necessity, from our argument, leaving us with a choice between chance or design. There seems to be a vast landscape of possible universes, says Hawking. However, if the universe were only slightly different, beings like us could not exist. What are we to make of this fine-tuning? Is it evidence that the universe, after all, was designed? Well, of course, he thinks not. Let me introduce an argument to discriminate between the chance and the design options. Uh, I'm not going to use this whole quote here, but Craig's basically pointing out that uh, statisticians have introduced this concept of what's called specified complexity to make this kind of decision for us. And various different scientific disciplines actually rely upon this criterion of detecting when something's the result of chance or the result of design um, within them. So he uses this analogy. He says, uh, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's just one run of the cards of that length amongst all the possible runs of cards of that length. And there are a lot more possible runs than the actual one you get, so it's very unlikely, yeah? But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets four aces, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. You know, they're playing cards in Dodge City. The other cowboys get a little bit suspicious. They pull their six shooters over, turning the table. I reckon you're cheating, you darn varmint. Hey, any deal of cards that I get is just as unlikely as any other, dude. <laughs> it's not going to play in Dodge. As Dr. William Dembski, a mathematician and philosopher from America, puts it, given an object or an event or a structure, to convince ourselves that it's designed, we need to show that it's improbably and suitably patterned. It's complexity, improbability, plus what's called a specification, plus matching an independently knowable pattern that you haven't just read off the event itself that triggers us off to thinking design is the most plausible explanation. It's a bit like if you were playing Scrabble, taking Scrabble pieces out of the Scrabble bag, sight unseen. 
if you were to draw this sequence of letters, sight unseen out of a Scrabble bag, you could, of course, very easily get away without invoking design to explain that. It is very unlikely. It's a very complex sequence of letters, one out of a huge number of possible sequences. It's very unlikely. But it is not specified. Unlike if you draw out D-O-G. That sequence of letters is specified. But you could easily get away with saying, oh, hmm, chance. Because, although it's specified, it's not complex. It's not very long. It's not very unlikely that in the course of playing games of Scrabble, you occasionally draw a short word at chance from the bag. But suppose you were drawing letters out of the Scrabble bag, and this happens. All things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, that is design, and some by chance. Plato, Laws, Book 10. Hey, what an astounding coincidence. Uh, we all intuit that because that sequence of letters is both very complex and specified by the rules of English grammar and by pre-existing in a book by Plato and so on, that the best explanation here is not chance, but is surely design, or art, as Plato would put it. If I take your pin card and put it into the hole in the wall machine, beep, 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 money, 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 money. Hey, dude, how did you get hold of my pin number? Uh, I didn't, I just guessed. I'm just lucky. Hmm. You reckon I must have the inside track on your pin number. So, we can use this criterion that various different sciences, like forensic science or cryptography, use in this argument. Things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. That's the best explanation of them. Two, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. It's not just that there's an unlikely one set of laws out of all the possible sets, but it's the one set of laws out of all the possible sets that also happens to meet the preconditions for there being anything interesting here. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Hawking seems to accept premise one. He seems to say, yes, specified complexity is something that rationally triggers us off to design. He says the problem for his view, trying to account for things atheistically, is for our theoretical models of the Big Bang to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. So Hawking sees that it's the fact that it's both specified, very special, and complex, very improbable, that is the problem he has to deal with. So he seems to accept premise one. In order to avoid the conclusion, therefore, what's he going to do? He's going to object to premise two. He asserts that while the universe is indeed set up in a special way, it actually isn't complex. It's not unlikely that there be a special universe because there are lots of different universes all set up in different ways. There's lots of rolls of the dice, as it were. There's lots of attempts at punching in your pin number. He's arguing like this. Premise one. If there were enough different universes, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough to indicate design. Premise two here is, of course, there are 
enough different universes to allow you to get to the conclusion, therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe does not indicate design as the best explanation. What does the evidence put forward for the truth of premise two? None. It's a bit like, I actually heard someone mention this as an illustration in a different context earlier today. Uh, specified complexity was underlying your discussion there of uh, artistic in inspiration and computers and things. Chimps or monkeys and Shakespeare? If you get enough monkeys and enough typewriters, they could write the works of William Shakespeare. Well, sure. So, why is it that when we look at a book like this, or a book by Shakespeare, we don't all go, aha, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys somewhere. Why don't we go to that explanation? Anyone faced with a many chimps hypothesis as an actual explanation for the complete works of Shakespeare is going to ask, is there any independent reason to think that X number of chimps plus typewriters plus ink, etc., actually exists anywhere? And in the absence of any evidence that they do, is, I suggest, quite rational in preferring the one author explanation over the many chimps explanation. Well, similarly, with arguing about the fine-tuning of the universe, surely. For this and various other reasons that I don't have time to go into, I think Hawking's objection to the second premise here falls flat, and that therefore we are able to rule out chance and infer in design on principled grounds as the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe. So, we're near the end now. Just want to draw your attention to this quote from page 181. Um, if, and they're talking about M-theory, is finite in its mathematical outworkings, and this has yet to be proved, it will be a model of the universe that creates itself. There's a whole mare's nest of problems here, but first of all, note this. Hawking has just admitted that M-theory has yet to be proved. But, of course, he was appealing to that in the course of saying, if there were enough universes described by different physics, etc., there are, because if M-theory is true, that could possibly describe such a universe. It's a little bit tenuous, but... But then he admits, but, of course, we don't actually know that that theory is true or not, so, of course, we don't know whether the objection's any good or not at the very least. But B, I think I've given some principled reasons why this theory will never be proved, because you can't prove true something that's logically incoherent. No one will ever prove the existence of square circles. Okay? No one will ever prove the possibility of something creating itself, which presupposes itself, from nothing. Because from nothing, nothing comes. And finally, think back to what I said about Hawking's own philosophy of science. For him, it's all about saving the appearances, just juggling models that let us do things that we like or predict stuff, but that doesn't, none of that means that it's true. You can't say this theory is more true than that theory. But if he doesn't think any of this science that he appeals to in order to give an alternative explanation of the facts of the universe is actually true, what is he doing relying upon it in arguments against an alternative view of what's true? He is creating a contest between things that he himself admits are not claiming to be true 
and another view that he's claiming to be true. And it just seems to be talking past each other at that level. Um, so I think we definitely have to sort of ditch that philosophy of science, even to enter into the kind of arguments between the kind of arguments for God from the data and the arguments against that uh, Leonard Molodnov and Stephen Hawking use in their book. So to summarise slightly cheekily, I've redoctored the front page of the Times here to bullet point, perhaps in a slightly more tabloid style, uh, the main uh, conclusions that I would come to. Um, one, Hawking's theory, self-contradictory. Two, Big Bang needed Big Banger. Three, Buck stops with God. Four, Just Right Universe put up job. Thank you very much. Suspend the trial flights of all of those aeronautical devices at the moment. Um, I've got a whole bunch of questions here. I was supposed to be trying to put them into categories, but they're all so different from one another. I've just put them into what I think is an order that will probably lead from lead on in a sensible way. Let's see how we do with this. Now, Pete, what are the ground rules for this? If people want to come back at you because they find your answer unsatisfactory... Uh, yes. OK, you're, cer- you're certainly allowed to come back at me, but uh, do understand I'm, I'm now recording again uh, for my podcast channel, so your voice might be picked up. If you're fine with that, you can ask a, a question. If you're not, I will stay around afterwards. I won't just disappear, um, so you could come and ask me one-on-one. Um, so I leave that choice uh, with you in full knowledge of, of what's going on. So if you want to disagree silently, they've just got to throw stones at you. <laughs> <laughs> or, or rotten fruit, that's usually the... Yeah. Right, okay. Why is, now, question number one. Why is the book called A Grand Design mm. when Hawking is saying that the universe was not designed? Uh, yeah, well, that's an excellent question. I, I think because it kind of... Uh, the book raises this whole issue of is this apparent design of the universe, the apparent uh, common sense, if you like, of explaining it in uh, terms of it being created and designed and so on, is that nothing but apparent? Is that actually a misleading appearance of reality? Is it a a delusion of some kind? So it's a kind of ironic title. So it's a kind of ironic, and and it raises the issue in the the thinker's mind, and uh, since it's, you know, people, if people know his position on this anyway, having read, say, A Brief History of Time or whatever, it's kind of a a little bit more, oh, you know, has he changed his mind or whatever, makes you pick the book up more than uh, if you just saw another book by Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking says, I still believe what I used to. You know. Okay, um. that was a very straightforward question. In fact, to start with, here's another question of, of fact, I guess. Mm. Is radioactive decay mm. not a physical event without a physical cause? You were saying there's no physical event without a physical cause. Yeah. Radioactive decay, how about that? Okay, great. Um, so, notice that the, the definition of a physical cause that I gave was what you might think of as a fairly lax definition. I, I specifically didn't term a causal relationship uh, in the same kind of terms that, say, a determinist, to draw on what we did earlier today, where um, they would say, you know, every uh, specific event has a specific uh, all-determining cause with a sort of one-to-one relationship. Um, certainly within modern quantum mechanics, there are um, interpretations of quantum mechanics uh, that involve an element of genuine sort of randomness or whatever of events uh, happening uh, for no specific one-on-one sort of deterministic cause. And we phrase those, those laws in quantum mechanics in terms of probabilities and so on. You talk about probability waves and the probability of finding uh, a particle here, there or wherever and so on. Um, but those are still 
physical laws and that uh, things uh, like uh, radioactive decay and so on are still physical events happening within a physical context, uh, within a relationship to other physical realities. You have to, for example, already have a reality described by the laws of quantum mechanics in place before you can then have a quantum mechanical random event, if truly random it is, um, happening. So I specifically described uh, what I meant by a causal relationship loosely enough to fit with those interpretations of quantum mechanics. But anyway, that's only one of about ten different mathematically consistent interpretations of quantum mechanics that philosophers of science argue over, and some of those interpretations are fully deterministic um, anyway. So it's a sort of disputed issue, but I, I purposely phrase things to sort of sidestep that issue and to take that into account. So you're saying it's a physical event and it has a physical cause within the system in which it happens? It, 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 it's, the physical event is only happening because of a physical context that it is right. relating to another physical thing independent of, it, of the event itself. Right. So there, is, there are causal preconditions of the event happening, as it were. Does that satisfy people? Yep. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Okay, <laughs> next question. You said that M-theory cannot be used in the proof as it is yet to be proved. How can you then say that God exists as he is yet to be proved? Surely, hang on, I'm not finished. Surely this means that M-theory is equally valid. Okay. Um, Well, notice what I was doing. I was not... If I were to give an argument for the existence of God, one of the premises of which was the claim that God exists, then I would be arguing in a circle and begging the question that would not be a good argument. Um, But what I was doing was giving a series of arguments that I I think at least are part of the case for showing that there's a God, where part of the qualities that we assign to God were in the conclusion of the argument, and none of the premises of any of the arguments that I gave you today were God exists. Okay, That was in the conclusions, if anywhere, not in the premises. To one of those arguments that I was giving, Hawking comes with a rejoinder, with an attempted objection. And he does use, as a premise in one of those arguments, M-theory describing reality, which elsewhere, he admits, he doesn't know whether that's true enough. Now, at the very least, that means that he's advancing an argument as an objection to an argument for God, which depends upon a premise which he himself admits might be false. So I think at the very least that argument, depending on a premise that you don't know whether or not it's true, can't really be relied upon to show anything. Certainly can't be relied upon as an objection to a a, a valid, sound argument. Right, so, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Um, Here's one that sounds as if it comes straight from 18th century philosophy to me. If all our proof of reality is derived from sense data... (sighs) And all sense data is personal, not shared. Yeah. How can we prove the existence of an objective reality? Are you actually there? Are you Ooh, yes. Am I just a figment of your imagination? Hmm. Um, the American philosopher Alvin Plantinger tells uh, a, a wonderful anecdote um, about visiting a university in America where there was actually a philosopher in the department who was what's technically called a solipsist. That is, someone who has the position that they are the only reality that exists. 
It is, after all, a much more economical hypothesis of reality than thinking that there are all these different people and things and so on. Uh, you know, they, they are the only thing that exists. And one of the other philosophers in the department says, you know, we look after Professor So-and-so very well here at the university in planting. And says, oh, well, why is that? And the philosopher says, well, you know, when Professor So-and-so goes, we all go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is a highly counterintuitive, let us say, move, which brings me on to saying the point that the question is assuming, is all of our knowledge about reality gathered from sense data? Um, I'm not sure about that. I think we can know things that we don't know at least wholly through sense data. Uh, for example, I think, obviously, we know through sense data that if you um, stick a fellow human being with a red-hot poker, they tend to react in a certain manner. Okay? Ah! Fall over and die and things like that. We know that through sense data. But I would also make the claim, I think I know, that sticking a fellow human being with a red-hot poker just for the fun of it is wrong. And I think I know that it's wrong. I think it's true to say that it's wrong to behave in, in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we can know mathemat mathematical and logical truths. I think I know that the law of non-contradiction is true and the arguments that contravene the law of non-contradiction are unsound. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to me to be something I know through sense data. I know that one plus one does equal two. And I don't think I just know that because I've got lots of experience of putting one thing and one thing together and seeing that there are two of them. Mm. I think I know that in any possible universe described by whatever physics or how, you know, however you imagine a reality to be, one and one is always, in every possible world, going to equal two. And yet I only have access to this world through my sense data. Right. And yet I think I know things about any possible circumstance in some cases. So that's pretty much an unlivable philosophy. You have to live as if objective reality is really... Uh, you certainly do. And I, I think I'm, I would be with sort of people like René Descartes with the whole... Sort of, well, I know I exist. I know there is something. It is impossible for me to deny that there is something that is true, something that is real, without contradicting myself. And I just intuit that the law of non-contradiction is true. I intuit that, that I am here. And if you don't share that intuition, um, why do you even want to bother trying to have a discussion with me, since not only I don't exist, but you don't. Um. <laughs> right, yes, OK. Big issues this afternoon. Here's another It was said that you would need to be a hard-hitting atheist to agree and believe that the universe is uncaused, since the causal buck must then seem to stop with God. However, why must God be this entity? How about the flying spaghetti monster or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't know about the flying spaghetti monster, it's a, it's a wonderful, fun analogy that's brought up in debates about the, uh, the design arguments. Um, started off by a couple of guys on an internet website in America, I think, and they said, well, okay, if you're arguing that there are signs of design behind the universe, why identify that with God? And I think they're making a very good point. It's a point made originally by David Hume, the, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, um, who was very careful at pointing out that, although it, it, and people differ over how they interpret Hume, some think that he might have thought there was some kind of designer a bit like people behind the universe, but he didn't think it was necessarily God. And he pointed out it's very difficult to draw a conclusion about God from data that's just about the world, you might at best be able to infer that there's some kind of intelligence of some sort behind it. Um, and certainly, I think within design arguments, you get to this, if you get to this some kind of designer conclusion, if you want to get to the, and that designer is God, there's obviously a bit of a, 
a chasm, you're leaping there, unless you put in some principled argument to the effect that the best explanation of design within the fabric of the universe is some kind of, of being worthy of the name God. Mm. Uh, and I think there are, there are a whole host of arguments that have to come in at that play, place, so you're not making a, a God of the gaps argument. Um, but certainly when you're dealing with the fine-tuning of the whole universe... I mean, I suppose you could say maybe it was created by you know, super aliens in a parallel universe who've got one of those universe-creating machines. Okay? But then, if they're, if they're in a universe and they're physical things, wouldn't they contain or depend upon anything that itself exhibited specified complexity? Uh, so, if the best explanation of specified complexity is design, it would seem to have to point ultimately to some kind of intelligence that doesn't contain or depend upon specified complexity, that isn't physical. Um, If it's a physical thing, then there are questions about, well, don't physical things need causes? Don't they depend on specified complexity to exist and so on, come into play? And you can only avoid that kind of question that seems to raise these demands for, for a further explanation by sort of transcending the realm of the physical, I think. Sure. So, just to make it absolutely clear, you weren't making a case this afternoon for the Christian God specifically. Oh, absolutely not, no. The existence of... Uh, I mean, nothing that I said today would give you any reason in and of itself to believe that God was three persons in one, in one being, or that one of those persons became incarnate uh, in Jesus of Nazareth, or anything like that. Um, all I've got to, with the, the arguments I gave today, if I've got to anything is some kind of transcendent, personal, intelligent first cause. Um, you want to call that the flying spaghetti monster, fine, but um, it then at least begs the question of, well, are there any other arguments that perhaps tell us more about the, the character, the nature of this transcendent being? Mm. Uh, as we build up the arguments, a bit like building up a sort of identikit photo of someone mm. uh, from different witnesses in the police station. And if you um, want any arguments, come and see me. <laughs> Okay, so if the universe is expanding, mm. what is it expanding into? Don't say nothing. Oh, here, good one. There must be something to expand into. Yeah, absolutely. I could say, well, it's, it's not expanding into anything. Does that get around it? Um, you know, um, the, the concept, of course, is not that there is some pre-existing space into which our space is expanding. The, the trouble here is that scientists use analogies to try and understand and explain things and to predict things. And, and all analogies are, are partial and fall down at some point. Remember earlier today when I was talking about the difference between us saying the stone was obeying the laws of physics and Aquinas saying um, it fell to the middle, you know, wanted to fall to the middle of the earth by natural instinct because that's where rocks want to be. Uh, and neither of us mean it literally... We're both using an analogy that has a certain range of usefulness because it does predict things. If you believed, you take on board the analogy, um, rocks want to be at the centre of the universe. Hey, here's a rock that's clearly not at the centre of the universe. Um, If I let go of it, therefore it will fall. Then that does predict what you observe. And you verify that hypothesis by letting go of the rock. In a perfect (laughs) sense in in that sense. But yes, the analogy falls down at some point if you took it too literally. Equally, when you're talking about Big Bang cosmology, I know it's one way to kind of get an intellectual grasp of what's happening or to be able to predict things to say the universe is, is expanding. What we're really saying is um, there's more and more space over time. 
Um, the average temperature of any particular area of space drops over time as thermal equilibrium happens. Um, but we then picture that by saying things like, you know, imagine a balloon um, with lots of different dots on the surface being blown up. As you blow the balloon up, those dots will all get further and further apart from each other. That's used as an analogy of the observation of the redshift in stars. From the light in stars shifting, they're all shifting away from us wherever we look. Um, the redshift shows that they're all moving away from, from us. Everything is moving away from everything over time. If you extrapolate that backwards, everything gets closer and closer and closer and closer until further up, far enough back in time, you get to the Big Bang singularity. But... Hey, you know, thinking of the universe as a giant balloon, nobody should go home worrying that there might be a giant needle out there somewhere in trans space about to make our universe go pop. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, let's try this one. You said you say God created the universe. However, I believe that this conclusion is only down to the fact that you can disprove other theories, i.e., chance. Hmm. Therefore, the only theory left is God, which can't be proved. Ah, well. What's at stake here is the nature of what's called uh, an argument by elimination. Uh, and an argument by elimination works by saying there's a range of possible explanations for something, but there's only a finite range of possible explanations. If we can have on the table, as it were, the full finite range of possible explanations, and we can disprove or rule out all of those possible explanations bar one then last man standing, as it were, must be the best explanation, would be the one that we must choose to believe. The potential danger with that kind of argument is that it would be a, what's called a false dilemma, uh, where I, I do something like, I, I, you know, uh, the lawyer gets the, the guy up in court and says, now, you know, tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yes or no? It's a simple question. Have you stopped beating your wife? And the poor defendant, of course, wants to say, but, but, but I never beat her in the first place. There's another option, but I haven't allowed that on the table. So you have to be careful of that would be the, the problem it might fall into. But if you're confident that you've got the full range of possible explanations and you can rule all of them out except one, then you are. that is actually a positive argument for that remaining explanation being the best explanation. But as well as that, it's either necessity or, or chance or design argument, I then gave a, a, a supplementary argument from the specified complexity as a, as a positive argument for inferring when it's reasonable to infer design as being a better explanation than simply chance. So I didn't just use the elimination argument, which might possibly be an argument from, from a false dilemma if you thought there was another option, but I also gave a positive case argument from inferring through specified complexity, just to kind of cover my back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is complicated stuff, and mm. uh, you can understand what lies behind the, the, the second last question, yeah. which is... They're excellent questions, by the way. They're great questions, yeah. aren't they? Should theists be concerned with trying to prove theories such as these, or be content with faith? Isn't it easier just to say, well, hey, this is mm. how I feel, this is what I believe, therefore I don't need evidence, or spend all my time attending mm. conferences like that? <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm going to answer from my own religious tradition background as, as a Christian because, I, I, of course, I, as someone said earlier today, you know, I, I can't attempt to speak for the whole group and I'm certainly not here to represent all supernaturalists, for example. But certainly I would say within the, the, the Christian tradition, the biblical understanding of what's meant by faith is not, not this uh, 
idea that's often put around by the so-called new atheists, that faith means believing something in the absence of evidence, or believing something even in the teeth of evidence to the contrary. Um, I think a, a, a better English translation of, of the Greek word used in the New Testament, say, which is uh, pistis, uh, from which we get like our word epistemology, theory of knowledge, is trust. Uh, and trust, by its very nature, can quite properly be based upon evidence or, or good grounds. Um, philosophers sometimes distinguish between believing that something is the case and, and believing in something, or believing in someone indeed. Um, of course, the Christian faith claims that it, it's not just giving you a, a philosophical set of propositions to kind of sign up to, but offering you a relationship to buy into, to, to, to join in with. Um, someone who asks for your trust. But if you look at the recorded sayings of Jesus in the New Testament, which of course opens up a whole kind of questions about is that reliably recorded history and so on and so forth. But certainly when you're looking at well, what does the tradition itself understand by faith, it would be very odd for that tradition to have this kind of faith equals the same thing as blind faith. The fact that we can make that distinction should, should tip you off to the difference here. Um, when Jesus himself says things like he does in John's Gospel where he says, believe that I am who I'm claiming to be um, basically because of my, my character and the things that I'm saying and claiming, but if not, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles that I'm doing. Um, so the tradition itself, whatever you think about the history of that, whether you think miracles, harm, etc., the, the tradition itself is claiming that believing on the basis of evidence is perfectly compatible with what it means by having faith or trust uh, in, in God. It's necessary. You couldn't say it was a biblical faith unless it was prepared to examine the evidence. Right. Sure so from, from the word one, the reason that this bunch of Jewish monotheists like Peter and John and James and so on radically changed their socio-political um, religious identities in the first century was because they sincerely believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, some Jews did believe that people might be raised from the dead at the end of history by God, but everyone would be raised together. There was no concept of, of uh, the Jewish Messiah coming and then being killed by the, by the forces rather than being triumphant over the, the enemies of, the, of Judaism and then rising from the dead as an individual within history. Now, whether they were right or wrong about it, deluded or not, I think it's very clear from the fact that they were willing to be put to the death for making that, that claim, that they were in a good position to know, you know whether or not they really believed it and whether or not they just you know, made it up or something. I think it's clear that they sincerely believed that. And so the, the, the entire origins of the Christian movement is inexplicable apart from understanding that these, these guys really believed that some hugely significant, empirically detectable event within their sensory experience... And then they say, we, we saw him, we talked with him, we touched him, we ate with him, um, etc. That they really believed that that had happened. And that radically shifted their viewpoint and, and started an entire new religious tradition. That's interesting. So faith and empirical evidence go together, they don't fight one another. Yes. Or it's not no, they're certainly at the very ground zero origin of what Christian faith is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Final question then, and uh, I'm going to give you two minutes to answer this one. You've answered it to some extent already, oh, okay. but uh, it's just good to know where people are coming from. And I left this at the end of the mm. file because it's addressed to you personally. It just says, are you personally religious? Am I personally religious? I, I guess the short answer to that is, is yes. 
There we go. Uh, that was less than two minutes. Uh, the slightly longer answer is... <laughs> what do you mind by religion? Um, the roots of the word religion go back to, to, to binding or relationship again. I think Christian religion is a form of spirituality centred upon trusting Jesus to be and to do who he claimed to be and do what he claimed that he could do for us. That he was the, the portal of our access to a relationship with our creator. Um, uh, I think that I... That's not just a sort of uh, opinion or something that I just choose to believe, as I'm saying. I think that there, there are grounds that I could give for that. Some of them are philosophical. I've shared some of them today. There'd be a whole bunch of, of, of other reasons. Some of them, when you're getting more specific, well, why am I this kind of theist rather than another kind have to do with the, the historical information around Jesus? Um, and I think a big part, there's lots of very sensible questions to ask about that historical data, um, its accuracy and so on, and I encourage people to ask and seriously try and find out the answers to those questions, but also remembering that the philosophy that you bring to that investigation will have a huge impact on shaping how you react to it. So if you come at that data about Jesus firmly convinced that naturalism is true, it will take a heck of a lot of data, historically speaking, to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you approach the same data already believing that there was perhaps some kind of God, or you're at least agnostic, or you're open to miracles happening, and it's just a matter of, well, is there sufficient evidence to convince me, then you might be a lot more open to being convinced and following that data where it seems, seems to point. So there's a, a dialogue again between looking at data, whether it's in history or in science, uh, or in the, in the legal system, and the different philosophical viewpoints that people bring to that discussion. And there's a sort of dialogue that has to go on between these things. You have to let your experience shape your philosophy just as much as your philosophy will inevitably, in, in part, shape your experience. That's great. Thank you very much indeed.